You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. And so that's what we're going to do today. If you have a Bible, open it up, Ephesians chapter 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles all along the aisles. Um, and uh, we would love for you to hold the Word of God in your hand. And here is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, um, as most commentators would say, there's an agreement that Paul is the original writer. So, who was Paul? Um, First, I think... Before we look at who Paul is currently, we need to look at who Paul was. And so Paul was a man named Saul. And he was a religious teacher of the law. He was a zealot. He was someone who went and really went after the law. Very uh, strong in his understanding of what the law said. And so when we say the law, uh, what we would be referring to is the first five books of the Bible would have been the Israelite law. So that's... um, the Torah, right? So that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He would have known it. He would have memorized it. And he was one of the leaders who upheld it. And um, when Jesus came and then Jesus was placed on the cross and died, a church emerged, a group of people who believed that Jesus, the person, the man who died on the cross, was actually the Messiah that the Old Testament spoke of. All the prophets all, the, um, all of the things that we actually, we just got finished with a series going through some of the Old Testament and Exodus that all pointed to a person that was going to be the Messiah, the Savior of the people. And um, Paul, whose name was Saul, did not believe that. And so what he was doing is he was going in and trying to silence the people that said that they were what they were calling Christians at the time, Christ followers. And so you have this man who's going around persecuting the church. He's going around and trying to stop people from saying, Jesus is God and he is the Messiah. So that's what Paul was doing. He was going around and trying to stop this wildfire spread of what he was saying was blasphemy, that Jesus, the person of Jesus, was not the Messiah and that um, there was going to be a different Messiah that was to come. And so he was going around trying to stop that. And then Paul has an encounter with God himself, with Jesus. He's on the road to Damascus, and he's about to go get a community of people that were professing faith in Jesus, and he was going to lock them up, imprison them, potentially even kill them. And he experiences Jesus. So he has this amazing um, transformation that happens in his life. And so now leading up to his transformation, then who is Paul now who's writing this? So what is that transformation that's happened? So Paul now, so he meets the risen Christ, and then for the next several years, he actually gets trained. He gets discipled. Uh, People tell them about Christ, and he he learns about the life of Christ. And then he goes up until Ephesians, he goes on two missionary trips. So depending on how you want to look at missionary trips, um, officially there's three. I consider there's four trips, that missionary trips that Paul did. Uh, the first one he went to kind of what is now Western Turkey. The second one he went to uh, kind of the middle of that. He actually went to Ephesus. 
The third mission trip, he actually spends two years in Ephesus. He knows these people really, really well. The fourth missionary trip, he goes to jail in Rome. And people don't count that as a missionary trip, but what better place to be a missionary than in prison and glorify God, right? And so when you look at it, he's on four official missionary trips. And think about his missionary trips. This is uh, 20, this is A.D. 42, 43 to A.D. 52. Uh, there's no cars, there's no planes. He walks everywhere. So last night I actually played in Google and looked at his distance and just kind of play with the amount of distances he did on, on four missionary trips walking. And it's probably 5,000 miles, either by foot or maybe on a horse or maybe on a wagon, but it wasn't, they weren't fast and easy. So then he finds himself in Ephesus. Ephesus is an interesting little town. Uh, it's an old town considering it was, uh, uh, towns at that time was probably a thousand years old. Uh, it goes clear back to the Greek. Uh, and then in this day and age, it's a Roman city like everywhere else. It's the center of uh, worshiping of the goddess uh, Artemis, but it's Diane, the goddess Diane in Roman. And she was known as the goddess of fertility, right? Um, and if you look at that part of the world, when you had goddesses or gods of a city, you also had cults of craftsmen that made things. So everybody had a little idol sitting in her room, or they made plates with the inscription of, of your city god. And that was quite, uh, quite a little industry. To the fact that if you read the book of Acts, one of the things that gets Paul in trouble in Ephesus is, as he is, as he is presenting the gospel and God is saving people, guess what happens to idol cells? They crash. Guess what happens to all the things that go into idol worship? They crash. And so there becomes a big uh, rebellion against Paul because they see you're ruining my business, right? And that happened in a lot of the cities. It happened in Corinth. Uh, there's always that rivalry. Uh, Goddish cult was an interesting thing in, in that time. They were, it was very wild to be part of one of the guilds that honored and worshiped those gods, they, they got out of hand morally quite often. And so you, we read in a lot of books that, that Paul actually addresses that you can't live both these ways. Interesting thing about Ephesians, this is a church that doesn't look like it had any problems. It, it, Paul is, read most of Paul's letters. There's always a big problem, right? Corinthians, a lot of problems. Galatians, you've got uh, aposty coming in. You've got people trying to take them back to Judaism and making a, a mix of Judaism and Christianity. We don't see any problems in Ephesus. There's nothing in, in uh, extra-biblical writings that Ephesus had a problem. There is one indication in the book of Revelation around the turn of the century that they lost their first love, uh, which tells us that they were a very loving church at the very beginning. Uh, and I can see that. If you ever read Paul's letter, what's the number one thing in Paul? Love. Love for your brother. So it's not surprising Ephesus in 99, 100 A.D., uh, Christ comes to them and says, you've lost your, your very first love. Uh, very interesting textually. You've got chapters 1, 2, and 3 that are huge, beautiful theology. I mean, we're going to start next week into verses 3 through 14. Man, that's some of the most beautiful uh, and deepest and, and treasures of who our God is that you will find anywhere in God's scripture. 
Uh, and then we go into two and we see who we are. And then we go into three and we stand on the, the Paul says that uh, he stands on this, uh, this authority of who he, who he is. And we're going to see who that is here in a little bit. Who is he? Uh, and he stands out authority in chapter three. And then four, five, and six are all an apostle and a pastor. Remember, he lived with these people for three, almost three years. He, t- he just sits there and encourages them and exhorts them. And in its authority, says, here's how you are to live. And in chapter 4, he, said, he talks about that, you know, you've got this new mind in you now. You're actually a new person. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. You have a new identity. You're not who you were. You're totally new. Uh, Ephesus, Ephesus was a very rich town, uh, politically powerful within the Roman uh, system. So it was a very much a very secular world, and... Uh, but the gospel really touched that city. Um, there was that, that, the town at that time was probably a million people, uh, which was huge for a city at that time. And that church was one of the larger, more robust churches that we saw from 40 AD to around 100 AD. Um, and so you see that Paul's fruit was very, very, uh, God blessed him in what he did. And then from Ephesus, he actually planted church all the way around it. So it's kind of the center of Paul's work for, for about two and a half, three years. So. And so I don't know if you're hearing the correlations to where we are today, but a, a city that's wealthy, a city that's politically influential, um, a city that's doing well overall, um, a city that's known for love, receiving northerners. No, um, uh, but, um, <laughs> but that's, I mean, so many correlations to who we are today. And that's why one of the reasons why the elders have decided, like, going through the book of Ephesus is going to be huge for us as a church because this is who God has called us to be. He's called us to be the type of church that is planting churches. He's called us to be the type of church that is going out and sharing the gospel with every man, woman, and child because the gospel changes things. And so he, he changes Paul's life, but then he also begins to change this whole community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like, I mean, all of these idols that were worshipped, these, these false gods that were worshipped, they built infrastructure around them to, to create businesses, right? They, they created money and businesses and uh, income based off of these goddesses. And when Paul comes and proclaims the gospel, God changes things. He transforms things. God is in the business of transforming and changing and so when we look at this, the, the biggest major problem uh, theme that we see is addressed is this identity formation. Our identity, he goes to the core of who we are, and he brings us not from bad to good, but actually from death to life. And that's, that's a big difference, because I think in a culture where everything is about being a better person, we look at Christianity sometimes as morality. Oh, I'm a good person, I do good things, I, I can... Um, you know, I've, I, I put some money in uh, that, that little round can during Christmas time. Um, and so, you know, I helped an old lady across the street. So th- I'm good. But the Bible doesn't talk about Christ coming to make bad people good per se. He's talking about making dead people alive. And in him making dead people alive, he transforms them to be who he wants them to be, which is good. <laughs> It is good. Like he, he, is, he wants to change who we are at the core of who we are, our identity. And so as we're journeying through this, um, what do you feel like this identity formation like, is going to like, walk? As we walk through this, these 
verses and as we walk through these passages, how is that going to affect our identity? How is that going to affect who we are and what we actually give our time, attention, energy, effort to? It's kind of interesting. I think two things we can draw from. We can look at scripture and draw from that, and we can look at history and draw from that, and then we'll look at a few words in, in chapter one. But remember, you had a very proud town, a very rich town, a very fast-paced town, very get-things-done town. And then um, we get a little picture of the identity in Revelations chapter 2. Um, it says this, we're about 92, 96 AD. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven lampstands. So Christ is among his church. I know your works and your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Read all of Paul's letters, and he talks about love, and patience, and kindness, and endurance during hard times. Here's a church that he spent two years with, and here's their identity, right? Jesus, talking to the elder of the church of Ephesus, reminds him that you are very much what Paul, I inspired Paul to say who you are, right? So that, there's, there's, their, there's their identity. They, they, they are going to walk through chapter 3 like we are. That's who they were, right? They, they did renew their mind. They get, did go from an old person to a new person. They fully understood their identity. That's good. So, um, you know, I'm just even thinking about, like, what we just experienced with Faye. I mean, life is fragile. I think we tend to try to live as if we're immortal. We try to live as though, you know, oh, nothing bad is ever going to happen to me. And then when persecution comes, when sickness comes, when pain comes, um, when loss comes, um, what are we going to see in the book of Ephesians? How is the, how is the Lord going to comfort us um, in the midst of the trials and the temptations and the hurt um, that this world is going to bring? It's actually, we know that it's going to bring that. Um, this world is not our home. Uh, we're not promised tomorrow. Um, so in, how do we look at the gospel in its whole totality and, and understand our identity in that? That's a good question. So a few things. In the very first sentence it says, I, Paul, an apostle. So what's an apostle? Now, what, what is Paul going to do here? Because in, in, in verse 2, he says something in, in what we know as to be an apostle's authority. So an apostle is an authoritative, an authoritative spokesman for something greater than him. That's what an apostle is. Right? And in Paul's case, he's an authoritative spokesman for the sovereign God of the universe. The only true God. The God that's self-existing. That's what Paul is. So whenever Paul speaks, he speaks on the authority of God. Right? So he says, I'm Paul, an apostle of God who, by the will of God. And we're going to see this word will over and over again. Who's... Who does Paul give all the credit for his being to? Because as we go through verses 3 through 14, the will of God in the plan of salvation shows up three times. And it always at some point is, here's something that happens, the way I saved you, uh, by the will of God to the power of his glorious grace, right, to, to that. 
So one of the things I think we have to get comfortable with is what does Paul mean when he says, by the will of God? And biblically, there's two doctrines on the will of God. One is what we call a will of decree, which is that God's sovereign decree always comes to pass. If God wills it and says it, it's going to happen. So I hope all of you are saying, okay, Tim, where in the world does it say that? It says it, one of the best texts is Isaiah chapter uh, 44. So if you go there, it says this in chapter 9. It says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. There's his will. And I will accomplish all my purposes. So what I want to happen will happen. It's my will. Uh, in this case, he's talking about uh, King Cyrus coming. In James, he actually talks about suffering, right? Uh, do not be surprised. I'm in uh, James chapter 3. It says, uh, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test as though something strange was happening to you. And then he continues on and, and finishes that thought up in verse 19. He says, therefore, let those who are suffering according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator while doing good. And the whole conversation is there, when you do good for God, you are going to suffer. And you're going to suffer, why? Because it's by God's will. Now, we've got a, we sometimes don't like that thought. But God says, I'm going to hold you through it. I'm going to grow you up. I'm not going to forsake you. So there's a, a, what we call the, the decree of the will of God. And then there's the will of his command. God commands what he wants us to do morally right. Uh, and in Thessalonians, it says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So there is a distinct difference between a will of decree as God's sovereign decree that this will happen. And then he wills a command. How many of us got up rejoicing always today, how many of us got up prayer without ceasing today and gave thanks in all circumstances today? Everybody raise their hand that did that, right? Most of us didn't, right? And, but God still wills it, but it's a will of a command. We cannot do it. What happened to Paul, so the question's got to begin when Paul says that I am an apostle, I speak on the authority of God by his will, which will is God talking about? Which will is Paul talking about? Is he talking about a will of decree that the sovereign God of the universe decreed that I would be an apostle of his? I didn't have a choice in this. He decreed it. It's going to happen. Or did he, uh, did God kind of come to him and say, you know, Paul, I kind of like you to be, I, I command you to be apostle. And he just kind of like praying every day, go, well, thank you very much, but I'm not sure I want to do that, right? The Bible teaches us the truth. So in Ephesians or in Acts 9 that, uh, that Bill talked to a little earlier he says now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vi vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am Lord. The Lord said to him rise and go to the street called Straight and at that house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Behold he is praying that, that he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might remain, 
regain his sight. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to the saints. So Ananias is saying, God, you really, Jesus, you really want me to go to this guy? He's killing us. Uh, in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the child children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So there we're seeing that Paul, in Paul's mind, he knows that he was chosen for one thing, to be an apostle. And then in Galatians chapter uh, 1, it says this. When, when was he chosen? When did the will of God come to Paul? Paul answers that himself in Galatians 15. He says, but when he said, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to the other apostles, but I stayed in Damascus. So in Paul's mind when he says, I, Paul, an apostle by the will of God, he tells us in Galatians, I was chosen before I was born. This is the whole reason why God created me to be an apostle to the Gentiles. We're here today, unless you're of ethnic Jewish background, we're here today because a sovereign God chose Paul before he was born, led a really bad life to Christians, right? That's what he did. Had an amazing encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. Christ instilled another Ananias to disciple Paul and pray for him because Christ said, I chose him. And then Paul went on 5,000 miles of missionary journeys to the Gentiles, and we are nothing but the continuation of the authority of the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago. We all stand in total amazement at that. So what he speaks in authority of the Ephesians church because he's an apostle, guess what? That same authority speaks to us as we read the book of Ephesians. What a blessing how God sustains his holy word. Right? And here's the good news. We get months and months and months to process the will of God. And so we, uh, we can't accomplish all of that in a, a few minutes, especially that our time is a little bit constrained this morning. Um, but God's will of decree, it will come to pass. And then he has a will of desire or command. And that it's something that he has declared, but because of our sinfulness and in our humanity, may not come to pass. So he desires that we obey as his children. But do you always obey? No. But he still declares it, and that's his will of desire or command. Um, and then, one thing that we'll get to press in on a little bit later in the series is his will of direction. And I think that's probably the most misinterpreted part of God's will um, that we have uh, all in our lives, and because I think often we say, oh, God said for me to do this, 
when really you just don't want to do something or you want to do something. And so we have to learn through the power of the Spirit to discern um, what God is saying and how he's saying it and filter it through his word because his word is the ultimate authority. Um, and so can't give you all those nuggets right now on how to do that, um, but that, those are things that we're going to journey through this series, and his will is super important because what we're seeing here is that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, called him to write a letter to the saints who are in this ethicist or this right. area, but this letter would have been circulated more than just that one town. And how do I know that? Because you and I are reading it right now. <laughs> and so we're reading it right now because it has been circulated and because people knew about this letter that Paul wrote. It wasn't like a, a certified letter just to one person. It was a letter that traveled with whoever he had asked to take it with them. There's some commentators that said there were different people that had journeyed with this letter. Um, and they would have shown it to different churches along the way to encourage their hearts and their minds and their souls to know that they have an identity in Christ. That because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that they have been given a new identity by the will of God. And that God has said, when I look at Ed, I see a son. When I look at Tammy, I see a daughter. Like, that's a new identity that God has given each and every person that has faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so that's something really beautiful and awesome. And that leads us, and how does that well, impact us? the other thing us, he tells us, us that the, right in this first, first verse, he tells us that, what our identity is. Mm -hmm. To what? To the saints in Ephesus. Mm -hmm. you know, everyone sitting in this room that believes in Christ is a saint. Mm -hmm. You're already set apart by the sovereign God of the universe. Right? And so where Paul says, my identity is the apostle of this sovereign God of the universe, all of us are saints mm -hmm. to the sovereign God of the universe. Now, and we don't always identity. act like that, though. No. No. And, and we'll so, unpack. We'll unpack. Yeah. Remember, being set apart for God's honor does not mean you're going to be perfect, right? We'll talk about that when, and that's what chapters 4, 5, and 6 will be, is here's what it looks like. Here's what happens when, when, you, when you're struggling living up to that. Because of Christ's death, I've prepared a way for you to come to him when you're not acting like a saint, right? God understands that. A sovereign God understands all that of his creature. Um. You know, it's interesting. So I have uh, a nine-year-old, two seven-year-olds, and a three-year-old. Um, and my nine-year-old has professed faith in Jesus. And um, she, we baptized her a few months ago. And um, she doesn't always act like a saint. But I think what's really important is to continually help her understand and know that when God looks at her, he sees his daughter. He sees a saint because of what Jesus did, not because of what she has done. And even for me this morning, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but do you ever just wake up and feel like you're not um, good enough? Do you ever wake up and feel like you don't deserve God to love you? Um, so that's where I was this morning. So I got up, um, just getting my, my kids ready. I got out. I wanted to get some time in the Word. So I went to Starbucks and um, sat there. And the devil's number one tool is he's going to go after your identity. He is going to try to convince you that God wants nothing to do with you. 
And so he is trying to sever identity, even from the beginning, right? When Adam and Eve, what did he do? He tried to sever their identity. God doesn't love you. God doesn't want what's best for you. God wants you to to, um, be less than. He's not going to give you all the blessings that you deserve. So you should eat this because this is going to give you what God is not going to give you. He's at the core going after their identity as, because my my, my daughter should never be at one. Sometimes we go out and they're like, hey, like on the way to church today, Sayla's like, can we stop at Starbucks? I'm like, no. And she's like, but I want a Frappuccino. I'm like, it's not good for you. You shouldn't have that much sugar in the morning. She's like, I'll pay for it. I'm not trying to withhold this from you. I can afford to buy you a Frappuccino. They are six bucks. It's ridiculous. Um, But uh, I I can provide that for you as your dad, but I'm not going to because it's not what's best for you, right? So, so that's what the, the devil's trying to convince us that my dad doesn't love me, right? He's not for me. He's not going to give me good things. He's going after the core of our identity. But what does he end with here? And this is, we're going to end and then the band's going to come back on up. I think you, you bring something else that we got to talk about now a little bit. And I think the way you said it, I think maybe hits on all of us. The first thing we have to do is get our, our view of what a saint is, hmm. right? If you came out of certain denominations like I did, only certain people can be saints. You had to perform a miracle, you had to do this, you had to do that. That's not biblical. That's very unbiblical, okay? And so a saint is not somebody that has in pictures of icons that has a halo around their heads. Paul's very clear here to say all those who believe upon Jesus Christ in Ephesus are saints. In the, in the Greek word, they are set apart for God. So I think it, as we go forward, there's nothing biblical that says to be a saint, you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this. Hmm. You're believing upon Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation makes you a saint. Hmm. Paul says that. James says that. So I think as we move through this and our identity, we'll begin to see a clear biblical teaching of what it means to be a saint. And guess what? We just talked about Paul's background. And if you read in other places, even as an apostle, Paul was not perfect. We've made Paul perfect by reading his letters. But if you read things that were going on, Paul struggled still, right? Because he's still human. We're going to struggle. The very fact that we're saints is because Christ died. Hmm. Pure and simple. Yeah, if anybody ever says, you know, or combats you with, like, oh, you're not a saint. Um, if we ev- like, or why are you a saint? Um, if we ever start answering that question because I, we're wrong. We're immediately wrong. We heard that a couple weeks ago. The only reason why we are a saint is because he because Jesus, because Jesus, because Jesus accomplished these things. Um, and then he says this impacts us by giving us grace and peace. Anybody want to experience some peace in life right now? Yes. Amen. Um, we can go Pentecostal here. Come on. Amen. We want to experience some, some peace, right? And, and that's what Paul is even proclaiming that over the church in Ephesus. What he say? He says, grace and peace from God our Father the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace is this undeserved kindness and the origin of all of our blessings in Christ. That's what we're going to see in uh, chapter 1-6. Nice. 
Um, that's what we're going to see in uh, chapter 2, verse 7. So we're going to touch on um, grace a couple times throughout this series. Um, and then peace, right? The summary of all the blessings resulting from being reconciled to God and to each other. So we're going to see that in 2.14, 15, and 17. So grace is the origin of blessing. Maybe this is the simpler way to say it. Grace is the origin of blessing, and peace is the result. Grace is the origin of blessing, and peace is the result of the blessing. And so that's what God's desire is for all of us to experience his grace and peace in our lives. So if the band, if you guys want to start coming back on up. Let's, um, let's touch on one other thing yep. there that, that you guys keep we going. need to get at the, the, the front end of this. Is in all of Paul's letters, all 13, he starts out. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He always starts out with grace to you, all 13. And at all 13 letters, he ends with grace with you, hmm. all 13. And so one thing when you read the Bible, when you see something that that's consistent on 13 letters, all of his letters, you got to go, why? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to begin every letter with grace to you? And why did the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to end every letter with grace with you. And I went back in my old studies from walking through Ephesians about 10 years ago because I remember walking and unpacking this and here's why. He says, I, Paul, an authoritative counselor of the sovereign God, when I speak because of my authority as an apostle, guess what? There's going to be grace to you. As you always read God's word, the, the God's word, because it's inspired by the apostles, there's grace that pours out on us. It's the place you find grace. And then he even does something more amazingly at all the ends of all of his letters. So he begins them that if you read this, grace of God will be in you because of the inspiration of what it is. And then he says at the end of every letter, grace with you. Go do something with this grace every day. Every day, go and let this grace that you learned in a Bible study, in a community group, on a Sunday message, at home talking with each other, as you've read God's word, the grace comes to you in reading it and go forward with it, is what Paul says to do. And so that's the beauty of what we're going to do as we spend a week in here. Every time we open up, every Sunday, grace is going to come to us. And every time when we leave as a body of Christ, guess what? We're going to take grace with us. Why? Because he gave it to us in that 45 minutes. Beautiful display on that. That's why I love what God did this morning with Faye. He said, y'all think you're going to have the, the best way to introduce Ephesians? Oh, I have a much better way. Watch my grace come to you in what I do in this body of Christ through Faye. Now the question is, are you going to take it with you the rest of this week? I love what Paul did there. And if we miss it, if we miss that in every letter, we miss a bit of grace. Amen. Let's pray. God, I do pray that as we go throughout this book, uh, that we just receive a new understanding of who we are in you that we experience your grace and your peace 
that we hear your truth and that we aren't fearful of it or scared of it, but that we actually love it and crave it and desire it. Um, and God, uh, I pray uh, even again for Faye. Uh, she's going home now. God, I know that even she said a couple times that she was embarrassed. God, I pray that you would... Um, that you would allow us to give her grace and love uh, to let her know there's nothing to be embarrassed about, um, that she is a faithful sister whom is loved, um, God, and for everybody here in this church, um, whether we are doing uh, extremely well right now and in a good season, or we are hurting and broken, um, if we're living in sin, um, God, I pray that we would all experience your grace so that our lives can be transformed. And as you transform our lives, God, I pray that that would reach every man, woman, and child in our community for your glory, for your name, um, and that you would give us repeated opportunities to proclaim your good news, to proclaim your grace to those around us, whether it's at our workplaces, at our gym, uh, at uh, the coffee shop, God, wherever it may be, that you would give us the ability to share your truth, your grace, your love with the world around us, God. Um, we are not called to hold these, this good news inside of us. We are called to proclaim it. So God, I pray we would be the type of church like Paul who goes and makes disciples of all nations. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.